Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is drummer, songwriter, and career coach, Matt Starr. First of all, let's talk about how bad is your Spotify. There's a website out there that uses artificial intelligence to judge your musical tastes. The way it does that, it looks at your Spotify playlists and the tracks that you play the most, and then it does an evaluation. Now, it's been trained on 2 million indicators of objectively good music, including pitchfork reviews, record store recommendations, and subreddits. I'm not so sure that I trust anybody to evaluate what my musical tastes are. Now, it's one thing if you have a site that's evaluating that. No harm, no foul. But just imagine if you're an artist and you have a bunch of fans that are playing you a lot and all of a sudden they go to this site and they find out that their taste is bad because of your music. Now, I don't care what the artificial intelligence says at that point. Who's to say, whether human or robot, what exactly is good or bad? So I understand the intellectual pursuit that's going on here, but I think it could be one of those things where there's some unintended consequences that end up happening. But if you want to check it out, find out how bad your Spotify is, go to pudding.cool, P-U-D-D-I-N-G dot C-O-O-L. Check it out for yourself. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Don't forget about my mixing primer and 101 mixing tricks courses that will help take your mixes to the next level. Go to bobbyosinskicourses.com to learn more. That's bobbyosinskicourses.com to learn more. Here's something I thought that was interesting, although I think for most of my listeners, it probably won't be that much of a big deal. However, if you're an orchestral musician, this could be a game changer. Some AI experts and musicologists in Berlin started something called eNote. This is an app that instantly transposes, automatically switches between movements and measures, turns the page, changes the size of scores, and even prints them if needed. The chief conductor of the Mannheim Philharmonic was actually frustrated because music publishers weren't making the leap to digital. So he and a programmer friend actually came up with what they say is the first library of native digital sheet music. It's pretty inexpensive, actually. It's $9.99 a month and it allows you to access 150,000 scores. This is a boon to orchestras because they'll typically pay around $600 to provide all of their orchestra members with just one single score. So again, saving a bunch of money there. This whole thing is not a trivial task though, because musical notation consists of about 1500 elements. And when it comes to music scores on this level, metadata and the score have to match perfectly. So if you're interested in this, just go to enote.com. You'll find out everything you need to know about the app. My guest this week is drummer Matt Starr, who worked with Ace Frehley, Jolyn Turner, Mr. Big, and many others, both recording and touring. Matt is also a successful career coach, using his past successes and failures as a guide to help musicians getting started or those that are stuck in place. 
During the interview, we talked about going from frontman to sideman, his secret for networking, working with producer Mike Chapman, and much more. I spoke with Matt via Zoom from his home in Los Angeles. Let's go back to the beginning. I want to hear how Matt Starr got into the business. Well, uh, I grew up in Connecticut, and um, I didn't have any older brothers or sisters, but I had a neighbor named Scott Cabala, and him and his brother had records, and um, they introduced me to a lot of cool stuff. And um, 1978, I was eight years old, and they had a record called Kiss Alive 2. And it's a live album, and you open it up, and it's flames and sparks and dudes with their hands in the air. And I just, I love music, but I just saw that, and I said, that's it. And I had a feeling that I didn't recognize at the time, but it was, that's what I'm here to do. You know, and I never felt that way about anything since. So I asked for a guitar for my fourth birthday, picked it out of the JCPenney catalog, and um, my mom, they didn't get me the guitar. And so I kind of moped around the house for a few weeks. And my mom said, well, why don't you play the drums? And I said, I don't want to play the drums. I want to play the guitar. And then another week went by. And I said, okay, I'll play the drums. Which I think they probably regretted. <laughs> now they don't. But in the midst, because <laughs> drums are not quiet. And we didn't have electronic drum sets back then. So the house was, was definitely shaking. Sixth grade, played in school band for about three weeks. And... Um, I was ever a school band director, I would tell the drum, the drum section, you guys, here's the sticks, here's the drums, hit everything you can, loud as you want, go nuts, I'm going to give you 15 minutes. We never got to do that. So we would sit in the class and they'd work with all the other instruments and I'd be, and then they'd go, okay, drums, let's hear your part. Doom, doom, jits. Great. Okay, now the flutes. So of course we're going to get in trouble because we got to be quiet for, you know, 40 minutes and not hit drums. So, um, you know, I realized too, and at the time, again, it kind of seemed like a problem, but I just wanted to play rock and roll. So I started taking from an instructor who was a jazz guy, great instructor named Mike Duquette, and he's showing me, and I said, I, I, no, I want to go boom, bat, boom, boom, bat, you know? And um, so I taught myself how to play over the summer, how to play the Motley Crue Shot at the Devil album and Def Leppard Pyromania. And in my head, I said, well, this is what I want to do. I don't need anything else. Now, I was partly right and partly not right, you know, but for me, it just, I always had a really clear idea. Played in local bands, did all that stuff, you know, had some regional success and then um, moved to Los Angeles in my early 20s. I didn't understand LA. Uh, I didn't understand how to get along with people, quite frankly. I had the I had the skill. I was I had a natural talent, and then I worked really hard at it too. Um, I looked cool, had all the right stuff, and it just didn't work. And I and I think I was you know I, I wanted to be home too because I was out there by myself, which was a lot. So came back here and started singing and playing guitar. That was a game changer because then I understood songwriting and I understood what the guitar player was doing. And it's hard on drummers because. I could give you, you really got me, a very simple riff. On guitar, that's how it goes. Bass, you could walk around, but that's basically how it goes. Drums, you could do a thousand different things. And depending on who you're playing with, who the songwriter is, what the vibe of the band is, what year it is, one of those things is going to be better than the other. So um, 
but I really understood like songwriting. I really fell in love with all the, the Phil Spector and the Don Kirshner writers and all that classic late 50s, early 60s stuff. Started listening to music from a different angle. So had some success with that, you know, got a demo deal with Atlantic, almost almost this, almost that, almost this. Worked with a guy named Jimmy Braylauer, who was a VP of A&R at Atlantic. And, and he was really helpful. I would call him and talk to him a lot. And, um, you know, he, he played the Dave Clark Five for me. He goes, listen to this. And he just, this is, this is like old school corded phones. So music actually sounded good over the phone. Yeah. And he just, you know any way you want it. And he just blasted my head with like, I go, oh, wow, like, what, what is that? You know? So he turned me on a lot of cool stuff, but he understood what I wanted to do. And I was, uh, I had, a, he said, you know, there's guys out there that want to be as great as they can be. And I was working with guys that were the best I could find, but it was always like, you know, come on guys, come on guys. So it was around that point. I moved back to Los Angeles I was again still singing and again, almost, almost, almost. And I just said, you know, I, I was coming up, I was about 37 now. And I realized I just want to be successful and not in a, you know, American Idol way, but I just, I, I don't want to do the struggle. The struggling artist thing seemed so cool at the time. And my heroes were Johnny Thunders and Brian Jones. They're all dead. They couldn't handle it. They couldn't make it, you know? Look at Keith, look at Jimmy Page, look at Pete Townsend, look at the survivors, you know, the guys that made it. But there was always this romanticism about the guys that had the great hair and, you know, had the cool moves. But the, they, they would have been amazing, but they just it's like. So I had to shed a lot of that stuff and, and frankly, grow up and recognize that, um, you know, again, I wanted to be successful and I wanted to I think for the first time I understood humility and I was willing to be in a room with people who were more talented than me because up to that, with the exception of working with guys like Jimmy Braylauer, Mike Chapman, who I did a record with and all these, these guys, I was always the leader and I was always, you know, running the show, but the show was going like 75%, but never in the nineties, you know? And um, so I said, well, if I could play with Jimmy page, what would I do? Would I sing or would I play drums? I said, I'd play drums. Okay. Then let's play drums. Let's do that. And uh, that with with a big mindset change and uh, being willing to say, like, I don't have all the answers. I know what I want. I know what I'm here to do. I knew that at age eight, but it wasn't happening. And so what was what was going on? And I made a list of all the drummers that I really admired who had careers that I that I thought would be cool to have. And I just started reaching out to them. And I just asked a lot of questions, um, loaded a lot of people's drums. I would go to people's. I remember, you know, reaching out to Kenny Aronoff, who was one of the guys and still is. And um, he did this jam when he wasn't on the road. And I would just go up on stage, say, Hey, I'm Matt. And I'd start breaking down his drums and through the whole conversation and go, you don't have to do that. I go, Oh, it's cool. And then he just talked to me. So what are you doing? What are you working on? Oh, well, you know, I just flew here and I did this and I got this with Don was and, and I'm listening to him talk and hear how much information he's retaining and how many different things he's got. And then I'm putting the drum in the case and I'm bringing it out to the card. After about three weeks, he goes, he goes, you should be, come over to my studio. You, you know, you should check out my studio. And I was like, absolutely. And with a lot of these guys, another guy was Jason Sutter, who um, had played with the New York Dolls and Marilyn Manson and Chris Cornell. So he had like some class, cool classic things. Foreigner was another one, but he also had some newer artists. And 
we talked for, we hung out, we became friends. And about a year later, he said, oh, I didn't know that you played uh, with Kevin DeBro from Quiet Riot, like in 2004. And I realized I didn't tell him anything about myself. Mm-hmm. I didn't talk about me. Now, I was there to help me, but I, I, I wasn't talking about me. I was asking about him. And I realized, like, wow, I've, I've really changed. And that's when things opened up. And I went from being so broke playing cover gigs that I sold kind of a lot of stuff that I had. One of those things was a kiss collection Mm. with a bunch of belt buckles. And I went from selling Ace Frehley belt buckles to two months later, getting the gig with Ace Frehley. And it was interesting that it went back to the beginning and I I felt like the universe had a stack of opportunities for me that it had just holding on to until I was ready to receive them, you know? And it's like, yeah, we're going to go back to kiss because that's number one. Let's start there. You know, and then it's just, you know, it's, it's going from there. But that was kind of, I, I think, my, my real professional career, quote unquote. Even though I'd been earning money and making a living since my 20s, but it was always cover gigs and stuff like that. You know? Wow, Matt. That's pretty interesting. The two things stuck out. One is you came to L.A., then you went back, and then you came again. And that doesn't happen very often. Usually once you leave here, you're, you're not coming back. So that's one thing. And the second thing is having enough self-awareness to understand where you were in life, a little bit later in life, especially. That doesn't happen often either. I kind of didn't have a choice because the other choice I had was was very dark and permanent. You know, so it wasn't like, hey, you know what? I think I'm going to examine myself. It's like, no, I am. What floor would you have to jump off of a building to die for sure? Because I wouldn't want to do it and have it not work. And it was like, hey, maybe is there another option here? And it's like, you know what? Let me let me let me reach out to a couple of guys that are doing it. Let me get around them. You know, because I realized there was no one in my circle that actually was that successful. I didn't I didn't know any of those people. But uh, so it was a very painful, uncomfortable time. That humility did not come naturally. And, and, and not easily, but I'm, I'm so grateful, obviously, that I, you know, I made the choice that I did, but I kind of felt like I really didn't have much of a choice. It was, it was many years of thinking I knew how to do it, and I know how to do a lot of stuff, but this wasn't something I knew how to do. The business, the career, and, the, and getting along with people, building relationships, you know. And the other thing is, when you're used to being a frontman, and a songwriter and everything, and then understanding maybe you should take a step back and, you know, take a left turn in your career. I mean, that does happen, but usually it doesn't happen as dramatically as what you just expressed to me. Yeah. Again, I like being up front. I used to say jokingly, no one can see my shoes when I'm behind the drums. And I got some great shoes, you know, <laughs> um, but I did like having that mic and I, and I love writing songs, but that's something that I've been able, like through producing and, and, and different ways to be able to contribute to situations um, and still use those talents. But just, again, just making the assessment of where can I be of the most value? Again, go back to Jimmy Page. Okay, you got 10 minutes in the room with Jimmy Page. You want to sing? You can sing. Or do you want to play drums? I think if I play drums, there's a chance he might say, hey, you know, let me get your number. And so that was it. You know, the other thing, too, that strikes me is you start out with Kiss and then you eventually play with Ace. Right. And that in itself is pretty interesting because it's kind of like full circle. It was, it was very much full circle. And I, and I, like I said, I, I absolutely felt that like this, there's a backlog of things to come to fruition, 
you know, and and then with Ace, I played on his last four records, but on the two records ago, he did a covers album called Origins Volume One. And he calls me up and says, hey, you know, that song by Free called Fire and Water. I said, yeah, of course. He goes, all right, we're going to record that today. And Paul Stanley's going to sing. I was like, OK, you know, yeah. so we did that. And then uh, about a year and a half later, I, I got to know Paul a little bit. And um, but then he had said, hey, give me a call. And he's like, I got a gig and uh, and Eric can't do it. And I thought it'd be great to have you play. And so we played a few Kiss songs at this private event in Hollywood. Myself, Paul, Tommy Thayer, who's the you know lead guitar in Kiss now. And then Jason Sheff, who was with Chicago for many, many years. So there's another one. You know, and then I got to play with Gene at a thing. And then, you know, so, yeah, it's it's interesting. And I just I know how many kids, probably millions, grew up pretending they were playing with the guys in Kiss, you know, when they were in their bedrooms and Halloween and all that stuff. And that it's actually come to fruition. It's like, yeah, you just again, that's a humbling thing. It's like I don't really have control over that. I just I'm on a path and okay, it seems to be working. You know, I had a similar situation happen to me. I grew up in a small town in Pennsylvania, 5,000 people, and the chances of getting out of there were zero or right above. And I remember I was still in high school, but I was playing in bands, and I heard a, a Rolling Stones concert, and Mick Taylor was wailing. And I thought to myself, I really want to play with people like that on that level, if only I can get a chance. Mm-hmm. And fast forward 20 years later, and I'm in the studio producing Mick on an album, and then we went out and we did a bunch of dates, and I was his musical director. But the big thing was we did one rehearsal at SIR, and kind of at the end we ran out of things to do, and he said, you know, I feel like playing a Stone song. Uh, let's play Jumpin' Jack Flash, and you play the lead. Of which I didn't remember what it was, but it didn't matter because he hit that, those first chords of Jumpin' Jack Flash after detuning and everything, and it was like, oh my God, I'm in the Stones. And I flashed back to when I was in the bedroom in, in Minersville, Pennsylvania, listening, and it was the f- same full circle. It was like, you know, if nothing else happens to me after this, I, I've sort of accomplished something. Yeah. So I, n- I know you can relate. Yeah, and it's, it's I mean, there's a, co- there's a cosmic thing going on there for sure, and then... And then there's another thing of just people who grew up on other people's music. I mean, when, you know, when, when Mick worked with you, I'm sure he felt like, oh, this guy gets me. And it's like, yeah, dude, because I've been listening to you since I was a kid. Yeah. You know, so you understand him on a musical level. So there's a comfort there, too. So it's, it's kind of both. But I have seen that where people were fans of something and they just it's in their bones, you know. So when they do play with another artist or play with the artist who, who wrote those songs, there's a comfort level there too you know so was your break then as a drummer playing with ace yeah i would say so that was kind of the first one like i said i i played with kevin dubro and that was a real pleasure because frankie benali the quiet right drummer was was a big influence on me but i wasn't able to kind of parlay that into something i should play with kevin then he said hey there's this tour called the bad boys of rock it's me Janie lane from warrant steven adler from guns N' roses and uh, Joe Liste from a band called Bang Tango. And it's going to be the same band all night. So you would play drums for all the, those guys, except for with Steven. He would play drums with, for the Guns N' Roses stuff. And there's going to be one bus. And I said, you know, I don't think I really want to be on a bus. Like, I guess I just don't want it bad enough. To be with Kevin would have been great. And Kevin's band was great. 
but you know, with Jamie and all these guys, I just said, you know what? It's just like, I can't, I can't wrap my head about. It. So I kind of paused that and did some other stuff. And, but again, yeah, then with ACE, like my mind was in the right, right mindset. And I, I think just really thinking of myself as an employee, you know, mm. as an employee, like I'm, you need someone to make the fries. Cool. I'll make the fries. I won't tell you how to make the hamburgers. I won't tell you how to run the store. I'm just going to be a soldier, you know? When Kevin offered you that gig, was it because you still had sights on being a front man? Yeah. And I did go back to singing. And every time I saw him, he goes, he goes, how you doing? You, you playing drums? I said, nah, I've been singing. Should be playing drums. And when I, you know, then he had passed uh, a few years after that. And, and, and oftentimes when I was playing with Ace, I would just kind of say, I, t I finally took your advice. You know, I went back and, and again, it wasn't a, a dismissive thing at all. He goes, you're a great singer, love your voice, but listen, you should be playing drums. And it's like, you're right. So it's funny because when I look back, I, I, I had gotten messages and probably had opportunities too that I just couldn't hear, couldn't see, you know, until I was ready. I saw that you kind of have a, a side thing here as a career coach. Mm -hmm. And I can understand how you can be very effective coming from your background with the story you just described to me, because that's so important. I mean, there's so many things there that you talked about that are very important in your career. And when you're young, you don't, maybe you grasp one of them, but you don't grasp all of them. That's for sure. So I can see why you'd be effective. Yeah. I think from doing it the wrong way for a long time and then seeing an, almost an immediate shift. You know, I had I had reached out to all these musicians again who I, who were further along than me, and many of them are still further along than me, which is great. But there's a lot that I kind of was getting more work than they were all of a sudden, and they so they started calling me and going, "What are you doing?" Because I'd never heard of you six months ago, and now you're this, this, this. You're getting called for this. What's what are you doing? And I had to think about it, and I was able to articulate it. And I think, you know, sometimes people are good at something and that doesn't mean they're able to articulate what they do. Yeah. You know, I know guys that you you would never think they would network, but they absolutely do, but they just do it in their own way. I'm able to articulate it. And um, yeah, I had to really work at this. So, um, you know, I can recognize the some of the tendencies and stuff. In the, and it was all just, it was here and here. It was the mindset and the emotions and they were just getting in the way of all the other stuff. Well, you mentioned about networking. You've made a conscious effort to do it. And then you thought about it later about what you did. So what is different from what other people do? Well, I think, I've, again, I've seen guys that are successful and they just, they're out and about, they have their way, they, they make their phone calls, they kind of, they keep things moving forward. I need to be much more regimented than that. So I have a grid and I have names, and I have numbers and sent an email, said, hey, cool, let's talk about that in two months. Cool. So then put it in my phone, April 15th. It's funny date. Let's not talk about that date. You know, <laughs> December 8th, call Bob. Okay, cool. And it's in my phone and it's a reminder. So I have to be very structured with that. And I think also um, I got over the uncomfortable feelings about networking or having it feel insincere. A lot of people I do coaching with, especially a lot of guys on the East Coast, go, they go, I don't want to be fake, man. I go, I get it. I'm from Connecticut. Are you fake? Are you a phony? Are you a big liar? Well, no. Okay, then don't worry about it. You know, anyone who's had success understands when you reach out and say, hey, I'd love to get together with you for a coffee or something. They know what you're doing. 
and they did it too, you know? So I found people to be very gracious, you know, and very, uh, very generous with their time, you know, and then some of those, some of those things have turned into to friendships, which is, which is very cool. But yeah, I think just understanding, okay, I have a feeling this is uncomfortable. Okay, great. I acknowledge that. And it's on the to-do list. So let's just do it, you know, like doing it anyway. Yeah. And, and just kind of getting myself out of the way. Tell me about your workshops. So, you know, that was something that started, I've been doing drum clinics for probably about a decade now. Always loved going to drum clinics when I was growing up. I love the fact that I could sit in a room with the guy who's going to go play the Hartford Civic Center and I'm going to be there with another 16,000 people, but we could just talk like drummers. And that was really powerful for me. Sandy Gennaro was one of the first guys who was playing with Cindy Lauper and Joan Jett. I just, he was there. He, he played on the track and he's sitting in front of me right now. You know, Nico McBrain from Iron Maiden was another one. And it was like, here he is. And then I'm going to go see him. And there he is up there. So it was, it was cool to just see like, they're just regular guys, you know? And so my drum clinic started, uh, I, most of the questions were business related, you know? And I said, you know, I think, if you're asking me how to get the gig with Ace, you're not looking for a rock and roll story. You're actually asking me how you can get a gig like that. I love drums, but let's just put the drumming aside and let, let me help you the best way that I can. There's, there's plenty of guys that can come and show you how to play the drums better. It's, it's what, where can I be of the most value? And so that's where the, the clinics turned into workshops. And now that we're virtual, I've been doing more of these and um, you know doing different subjects how to schedule your day and get shit done is one, um, you know, talking about networking, talking about mindset, talking about quarantine networking, because a lot of times the thing I hear most lately is, well, everything's changed. I go, your purpose here on earth has not changed. How we interact socially has changed, but like why you're here or what your hopes and dreams are, that has not changed. So how do we do what we've been doing and just do it virtually? So that's something else that we talk a lot about in that and um and again from doing coaching now for like six years and having all these one-on-one clients you start to hear this it's like when you teach a lesson you know you teach drum lessons i could tops of the hands flat make a triangle with the sticks sit up straight don't let your pinkies hang out like there's certain things you say over and over again so the same thing happens with coaching and so then i'm able to to identify those things and really you know just help people with that right like right out of the gate you know you're so right i do a lot of workshops and q a webinars and things like that and I always ask in advance, do you have any questions for me? And I keep a whole list of those and anything else I can. And then I go back and kind of cross-reference what seems to be the questions that keep on coming up. I mean, you know inherently because you hear them, so you can probably pick it out anyway. But sometimes, you you, you know, I'm surprised when I go back and I look and say, oh, that and that, and oh, it keeps on coming up. But it's pretty interesting in the fact that, yes, you do kind of hear the same questions questions over and over so you're prepared for it yeah i mean i i hear a lot like next level i want to get to the next level and i go well what's that and they go i don't know i just don't want to be where i'm at and i go well you got to define next level you know yeah. what is that next level so defining so that's like that's like one of the things that, that comes up a lot but i find um guys will again want to want to move up but they don't really know what up means, or they don't know what forward means, so they're not really able to articulate it. And then when you ask them to articulate it, they, they kind of like, well, you know, or they go, if I could just, I go, no, no, just, no, just tell me. You're at a restaurant. Would you go to a restaurant and say, 
if I could just, I don't want to bother you, but if I could just get like a, a hamburger or even like a small thing and do you want fries? Ah, I mean, if you could, I just, I, that's how people talk about their dreams. If I could just get a gig or, I mean, doesn't, I don't, I don't even care about the money. I'm like, whoa, whoa watch that. Yeah. That you don't get extra points for not caring about the money, you know? So let's, let's leave that out and just clearly state what you want. You know, but you see all the blocks when they're just trying to articulate it. And then usually when it gets to the end, they go, okay, you really want to know what it is? And this is, this sounds crazy, but I go, cool. We're now we're getting somewhere, yeah. you know, that's, that's the thing to really get to that point because there's a gap between, and I think with all of us, you know, but some people much more than others, what they're capable of doing and then what they're actually doing, you know, the amount of talent they have to share and then how if they're actually getting to utilize that and share that with people. And so how do we, how do we close that gap? You know, so much has to do with personality too, because you can have two people with equal talents. And if there's one that, you know, you can get along with, they're always going to get the gig. Yeah. So there, there's so much, especially if you're going on the road, it's like, okay, who do I want to spend six weeks or six months on the bus with? Right. Right. And that, and that's a, that's a huge one. And, and, and as, it's kind of like a, um, you know, as, as kids, you know, who's, who's better, who would win in a fight, Spider-Man or Batman, you know, all this stuff. And you, you try, you, you judge, musicians tend to judge on what they understand, which is music. So they go, well, he's a much cleaner player. Yeah, I know, but they went to high school together. Yeah, right, right. You know, like when Bev, Bev Bevan from ELO, who I love, played with Black Sabbath. And at the time we were like, What? You know, well, how is this possible? Well, they probably live next to each other or hung out at the same bar or like we're working in the same. There's a connection there, you know, but as as outsiders, we didn't understand that. It was just pure. Well, he's not a metal drummer. Why isn't he? Why is he in Sabbath? You know? Yeah. So oftentimes, you know, guys on the outside are trying to figure out something that they, they haven't been on the inside. And yeah, if you can't, if you don't want to be with somebody on a bus or just hang out, that's going to make it difficult to get work, you know? Are you still writing for Drumhead magazine? I do. Yep. I um, Jonathan Mover was was gracious enough to. We were just talking. And he goes, "Hey, if I gave you a column, what would you want, want to write about?" And I said, "I said probably the, honestly the stuff I write about in my coaching." And he goes, "Okay, sounds cool. So um, why don't you put something together and you know send it to me? Let's see." And that that was it. So I I called it the Big Idea with Matt Starr, and um, yeah, I'm I'm. You know, occasionally I'll miss a deadline, but I, uh, yes, I'm in most issues and, um, and then that's been a great, uh, again, I look through there. I don't even have, I don't even talk about drumming half the time and that he just allows that to be in there that he sees that that has a value is, uh, is really meant a lot. What's the most difficult thing that you do difficult to you mentally to get your arms around? Yeah, I think probably juggling everything from you know, being a drummer, being a coach, being a dad, being a husband, being the provider for my family, and then like taking care of myself. I think all of those things, that's that's like the biggest challenge. And and, and it's a pleasure to have that be a challenge, right? Because, you know, there's plenty of folks in studio apartments sitting there shredding to Ingbay Records and, and they don't have any challenges really. You know what I mean? So, uh but I think that's probably the the biggest one, and 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 I think having trust that 
that that it's adjustable you know that my career and my family and my wife and all my relationships they can all work together and um it doesn't ever have to be one or the other it can be it can be both you know you know there's so many people that work under the premise of well i don't have any work now but i know something's going to happen right you know a lot of times it does there's no question but I don't know that I could ever do that myself. It's like, well, if there's no work, let's figure out what to do. <laughs> you know, let's go do something. That's another thing you know, where people will do that and they'll say, oh, yeah, something will come. It's like, oh, man, will it? Yeah. And, and again, like, again, I'm thinking about one guy in particular when I talked about kind of this people that network, but they don't really look like they're networking. And, you know, and he just kind of rolls with it and stuff does come. But he's single, lives by himself has a very simple life. So it's like, if a month is tight, it's like, it's cool. I'll just dial it back. So I think having a family has just taken away a lot of those, those so-called luxuries. You know, I talk to guys, Hey, uh, you back from the road? Yeah. Yeah. I'm back. Let's go grab a coffee. Yeah. I'm still, I'm still, you know, getting adjusted. I go, when'd you get back? I think back like a week ago. Well, yeah, it's been like a week and you were, in the, in the States, what do you mean you have, I mean, I come home, no matter what time I get back from a tour, daddy's home, big hugs, tomorrow morning, 7am, I'm making pancakes for the kids. And it's like, it's just, it's been great because I just don't have a chance to kind of, you know, well, I need some more time. Nah, no, you know, it's amazing how much you can get done. I mean, my wife and I said, what did we do before we had kids? Because we have so much less time and we get so much more done. And so it's, um. I think there's also just something about just, you know, take care of yourself, but just keep moving, keep the energy moving forward. If there's a to-do list, even if it's, you know, emails or bills or whatever, just clear it out. Just keep it, keep it, keep that thing rolling, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Okay. You don't have to name any names for this, but what's the worst gig or session that you've ever had? Yeah, I won't name names, but I will say I've had sessions where, I am a professional rememberer, big part of what I get paid to do. And when I've been producing artists, I've sometimes said, listen, I'm, I'm a professional rememberer and I'm having a hard time remembering this. So we need to, we need to get those hooks in there. We need to clean this up. But uh, that there's just been some tracks that are just like a stream of consciousness and, and, and sometimes not to a click, which is, that's okay. If it's not to a click, you know, people do, but sometimes it, it needs to be reined in. I'm trying to find the one. And I'm always thinking, well, I guess I'm not, I'm just not getting it. It's like, no, dude, this, this is, yeah. So anyway, those been, uh, those have been challenging. We've had, we've had a few of those here and there. And I, and I tell myself it makes me better, but I don't, I'm not sure that it does. Well, I think if you're confused, it's pretty hard for that to happen. If you understand where you're going and intellectually you, you get it, then maybe, but if it doesn't, seep through intellectually then maybe not yeah yeah i i just i think the ability to say we're going to complete this task and we're going to do this as as diligently and as you know as invested as i do anything else so that that in itself is the lesson but it's like okay next track i have to ask you this uh, and it's Probably something that's so small on your resume, but I, I happened to see it doing some research about you. You had tracks on SpongeBob? I did. That was a band called the Automatic Music Explosion. 
And that was in the mid 2000s. I come to LA. That was after the Kevin DeBro gigs. And I got into bubblegum. I, I liked a lot of bands that were bubblegum and I like bands like Cheap Trick and the Ramones and Joan Jett that have that element. I love hand claps. Got to do the hand clap before the snare, not on top. It has yeah, to go. Yeah. Okay. But anyway, and so I said, you know, I want to do like a modern day Archie's. And so we had a female in the band who was about six feet tall, just powerhouse. She would sing. I would sing. It was this big, big party. And we had a song called come on, come on. And um, yeah, and it ended up this one bug. Was it the movie or the show? I would think the movie, actually, because, yeah, because some of the checks have been okay. So I, I think it was <laughs> the movie. And, and that was actually produced by Mike Chapman. Oh, very cool. Very cool. I've never heard any stories about working with him. What was he like in the studio in terms of, uh, was he a taskmaster or was he someone that kind of just let it flow? He was a wizard because it seemed... Like he was just hanging out. And one morning we came in and I came in, he said, Hey Matt. And then Jody came in, our singer or the female, he gave her a flower. Huh. Max, our drummer who needed a little extra love every now and then he gave Max a hug and a kiss on the cheek and said, how are you mate? And Jeff, the bass player was a very working class guy from Pittsburgh. He goes, what's up dude. And then Chris was also that way. And he's like, Hey Chris, what's up? And I just watched how he greeted each one of us in the morning. And I was like, yep, there it is. So I had heard a lot of stories about him, especially with the sweet battling, you know, trying to get them to do stuff. They called him Hitler and it was a whole, you know, they had this, this relationship like that. So um, I was kind of looking forward to some of that, but I also worked with him later in his career. So I think he had mellowed, which ultimately was good. And, um, he was all about energy, similar to what Jimmy Braylauer would talk about. Play it faster, play it more energy, more energy. And we would finish the take and he goes, you guys are just blowing my mind. That's the greatest fucking thing I've ever heard. Oh my God. When you hit that note, Jody, uh, I'm, I'm do another one. Just let's do it. Just keep going. Do not. And it was like, you just felt like a million dollars and that's how he got it out of us. And I listened to the demos that we did, which were good. They were clean, tight, all that stuff that our, us musicians think about. And I listened to what we did with him. And it just sounded crazy, like in a great way, it just sounded like a party. He just infused that into us. So cool. Wow. Last question, Matt. What's the best piece of business advice that maybe you learned along the way or somebody imparted to you? I think to understand that this is a business. And that music is on this side, my right side, and math and numbers and business are on the left. And emotions are great for creating. They're great for interacting, reacting, being spontaneous. They're terrible for business. And so to really understand that I am a corporation unto myself and to look at my business like that. And then when it's time to rock, rock. But if you're a musician, whether you like it or not, you are a uh, you are a corporation, and you've got to take care of yourself. And, and and I don't mean that in the way that like people are going to rip you off and stab you in the back, but nobody is as interested in your well-being as you are. And so, really, really take care of it, and um, 
And the last thing I would say is set your rate and stick to it. Just set it and stick to it. You can find out more about Matt at mattstarmusic.com. That's Matt, M-A-T-T, star, S-T-A-R-R, music, all one word, mattstarmusic.com. You can also find out about his coaching at mattstarcoaching.com. Same thing, Matt, M-A-T-T, S-T-A-R-R, coaching, all one word, dot com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.